All right, we are going to pick up where we left off last week, and we'll finish this morning. Uh, if you recall, last week we were dealing uh, not just with a specific verse or verses, but we were dealing uh, more broadly with the Bible's teaching with regards uh, to homosexuality. And uh, I showed you a chart, and I think, yeah, we have it up here. I know you can't read the fine print probably from where you are, but um, likely over the last year, if you have anything to do with social media, that you've seen this at some point. And uh, this became very popular with those who wanted to oppose the Bible's teaching with regard uh, to homosexuality. So we're responding to each of the things that were on here. And if you recall, last week we dealt with the first uh, few objections that were raised uh, with statements, um, the first one being, because Jesus said so. And we talked about how uh, that is really a valid argument and um, that Jesus really did talk about uh, homosexuality. Uh, he talked about marriage and uh, even more importantly as a member of the Godhead, the eternal God himself, that uh, because the word speaks about homosexuality that Jesus speaks about it as well. Uh, we dealt with uh, the Old Testament passages, particularly Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 and the Levitical law and uh, how we apply that as Christians today, and specifically dealing with the difference between the moral law of God and some of the more ceremonial things that are brought out in opposition to this. Uh, so and we dealt with that as well. We started to work through um, the next one because the New Testament says so. And the basic argument against that was, um, yes, the New Testament does say something about homosexuality, but, you know, Paul said that, and Paul, uh, and to quote directly from this little chart, Paul may have spoken against homosexuality, but he also said that women should be silent and never assume authority over a man. Shall modern-day churches live by all of Paul's values? And the simple answer to that question is yes. Uh, rightly understood, the church today should live according to what the Apostle Paul has written for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, we dealt with uh, the New Testament teaching uh, in Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. Uh, so from there, we'll go on to um, the next one and the argument uh, that they want to, uh, if you go down, um, so you think homosexuality is sinful? Yes. Why? Uh, and the fourth one over there, because God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. I'm sure you've heard that before. Uh, and their argument against that is this. That was when the earth wasn't populated. There are now 6.79 billion people. Breeding clearly isn't an issue anymore. That's their argument. It's a pretty terrible argument, but that's it. It is, uh, it is a logical fallacy. It's called begging the question. Um, you can't state a premise and say your conclusion is valid simply because your claim is valid. So I can't say there's a lot of people on the earth. Well, that's a valid claim, but that doesn't validate uh, the, uh, the answer to the question that's being posed. I'm, uh, I'm begging the question when I do that. And, and there's a huge assumption in the response here. Oh, thank you. Um, 
what, what is the assumption behind this? There's several, but what is the assumption with regard to, uh, to man and, and woman here? Yeah, so that the male-female relationship uh, is unique only in that it uh, is useful for procreation, right? That's the, that's the assumption behind uh, what is being stated here, that God created male-female relationships for nothing other than procreation. Um, but why, why is that wrong? Just think biblically for a second. God created marriage in Genesis, uh, in the garden. Uh, what did he say about marriage there? Okay. Right. Sure. Excellent. So when God created the institution of marriage, he said... A man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So in that, that's biblical language, it implies there is a sexual union uh, that, uh, through which procreation happens. But all of this came about because God said, Adam needs a helper. He named all the animals, he saw all the animals, he realized there wasn't one fit for him, so God created Eve uh, out of his side. Um, so from that we see God only created male and female relationships with regard to um, not just procreation but marriage we never see in the Bible male-male or female-female relationships ever validated by God now we'll, we'll deal with um, the issue of marriage and polygamy and that sort of thing here in a minute um, uh, that's, that's a more difficult issue to deal with uh, because it seems as though uh, there are times when uh, some of our patriarchs of the faith had multiple wives. Did God say anything about that? Was that wrong? Um, but what we don't see in this regard is that while uh, there were men with many wives, um, there was never a man with a, a husband or never a woman with a wife. Uh, you don't see that in the Bible. And the only things with regard to homosexuality that are addressed are that God sees it as, we looked at last week, an abomination. He destroyed an entire community as a result of it. And on and on. So, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two become one flesh. And physically, uh, we are not, uh, we're not just talking about procreation, but a relationship in which there is mutual benefit. Uh, there is, um, our confession talks about um, marriage being for companionship. There's an idea of a special friendship that happens with a husband and a wife. Um, and if you just deal logically with this, the physicality of the human body deals with the reality uh, that the natural order, the natural law of creation speaks to man and woman uh, having a relationship uh, that is designed for one another. So uh, while it's maybe a crass way to state it, there is validity to uh, the premise that God made Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. 
I would just recommend to you that if you are dealing with this subject with someone, that that's not the way you talk about it. Um, that we need to be a little more uh, diplomatic with our language, a bit more tactful in the way we speak of it, uh, because that is uh, certainly an offensive way to address it, and we need not to be the offense ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, we'll get to that in a minute because that's one of the later. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> that's one of the later things. This is a cultural argument. So we'll, we'll deal with that in a minute. Uh, we talked last week about one of the things that comes up in this is I was born that way. I was, I was born with a natural attraction uh, for the same sex. And uh, who recalls, how do we say we can respond to that? What is the response to that biblically? Yeah. It's a, it's a moot point, right? It really, that's fine. Perhaps uh, you were born that way. Yeah, Eric? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Our natural bent uh, is towards sin of all sorts and kinds. So uh, while one may, uh, may sin in the way of, uh, or be tempted to sin in the way of uh, same-sex attraction, others are tempted uh, in all sorts of different ways. Uh, for some, it's a love of money. For some, it is uh, uh, lust, a heterosexual lust, uh, for, and we just go on and on. We all have various things uh, that we look at and say are struggles with sin. There's, there's, a big, uh, there's a big push by a lot of Christians to just invalidate this claim altogether when people say, I was born that way. I just don't think it's necessary to argue that. Fine, you can have that. Perhaps you were born that way. It doesn't make it to be something that we say is okay then. I was born with a desire uh, to, uh, to do this or that because I was born naturally a sinner. I think uh, uh, you talk to uh, most uh, teenage boys, they will tell you of desires uh, that are perhaps a bit shocking, um, but it's natural. So do we just validate it and say, well, then go ahead and act on all of those desires? Absolutely not. Um, there's something of uh, looking at temptation and dealing with it appropriately, regardless of what it is. Yeah. Well, if we allow that line of reasoning for this issue, why, why not just look at it? Sure. Yeah, pedophilia. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, currently, you know, you get most groups to say, oh, well, obviously, I'm not talking about something like that. Sure. They have no logical, moral reason to object to that if they're ground upon which to, you know, affirm homosexuality is simply one person can decide. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we dealt last week, remember we said Leviticus uh, the 18 and 20, uh, they not only deal with homosexuality, but they deal with things like pedophilia, uh, bestiality, these kinds of things. Um, we don't hear a lot of arguments against those. Um, 
And yet those same arguments can easily be made for those. I was born with that desire. Well, maybe you were. That doesn't make it uh, a virtue or something to be pursued. Any other thoughts or questions on that one? Yeah, in fact, uh, all of the major covenants in the Bible are accompanied with this command by God to his people, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, And he's never rescinded that. Um, I tell couples in premarital counseling all the time that married couples who are Christians need to be open to having children, Um, that we should desire that. Children are a blessing. Now, certainly some uh, aren't able to, and that's uh, a different issue altogether. Um, But we should be uh, wanting and open to having children as Christians. Uh, That's something God calls us to, um, to raise up a a godly heritage. So um, certainly that cannot happen in uh, homosexual relationships. David? Mm-hmm. And it says in James one thirteen, it says, "Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by it. Tempted by evil, and he himself takes no." Yeah. It just goes back to that's a temptation that you're having, and God's not going to try you with that. That's excellent, excellent. Yeah. Did you guys hear him over here? He's dealing with James saying, "You know, let no one say I'm tempted by God. God doesn't tempt us, right?" Um, so, in essence, when I say I was born that way, what I'm, I'm using that as an argument. I'm, I'm blaming God. I'm saying uh, God's responsible for uh, tempting me to want to go this way. Um, when reality is, I need to look at my own heart and say these are desires that come from my heart because my heart is naturally sinful, right? So, um, that's, a, that's a very, very good point. Yes? Yeah, yeah, I was born that way, right? Absolutely. Sure. Well, that's not going to hold up very well uh, with your neighbor when he finds that you have um, spent some time with his wife. I was born that way. <laughs> it's not going to go well. Um, when, when, uh, when I stand before the judge and say, I murdered this man who cut me off in traffic because I was born with a natural desire to kill anyone who crossed me. It doesn't stand up very well. Uh, we need some, uh, uh, that's a pretty bad uh, way to um, make the excuse here. So, all right, the next one, um, 
because the Bible clearly defines marriage as one man and one woman. And then here's the, uh, the response here is um, wrong. The Bible also defines marriage as one man, many women, one man, many wives, and many concubines, a rapist and his victim, and conquering soldiers and female uh, prisoners of war. Okay, of all the marriages we see in the Bible, uh, what do we see that God himself establishes? We'll start there. What has God himself established? Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. A man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. That was God establishing the covenant of marriage. Now, the question we have to ask is, are the other types of marriage uh, or, uh, we'll say, polygamy or those kinds of things, are those condoned in Scripture? Adam says no. What do you think? What's that? Early, maybe. They're not condoned, right? Okay. So, yeah, go ahead, Tris. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so that's part of the problem, right? We have to, we have to distinguish between uh, the fact that the Bible tells us all sorts of things um, about a variety of things that were good, things that were bad, uh, some blatant sins, uh, some things that were, uh, were happening that um, God doesn't necessarily come right out and say in that moment he's opposed to, but further on we see by his response to them that he certainly was, um, so let's, uh, let's deal with that in just a second. I want to I address this one. One is a lot easier. Uh, why, for example, was a rapist uh, who impregnated a woman uh, required to take her as his wife? What's the deal with that? So we would read that. Uh, that certainly is part of God's law, that if uh, a man raped a woman, she became pregnant, then he was obligated to take her as his wife. And uh, we would look at that on the surface and say, that seems terrible. A woman who was victimized by this man, and now all of a sudden she has to become his wife. But why was that a part of God's law? What's the point of all of that? Mark? Good. Absolutely. We have to look at this through its historical cultural lens, right? A woman, especially, particularly in the first century and prior, who was pregnant outside of marriage would have been considered unclean, would have been considered one that a man would not go to to marry, right? So she was without, and the women didn't have income, they weren't working, and now she has a child. Um, she didn't have, uh, there was no, um, you know, food stamps and the sort that she could get on welfare. So who's going to take care of her? Uh, 
And so really, this is a provision by God in his mercy. I know you think about all the implications of that, and it's hard to understand it that way, but really this is God being merciful to the woman and giving some responsibility to the man. Now, does in the midst of that, is God saying that the rape was okay? No, of course not. It's wicked. It's evil. Uh, no, no way would it ever be defined otherwise, but God is mercifully providing a way for these women to, uh, to have what they need for themselves and for their children uh, moving forward. In terms of punishment? Mm. I, I'm sure there is. I, have, I don't uh, recall. We can look. Um, but at the very least, he had to take her as his wife, but I'm not, I'm not certain of whatever the follow-on would be. Right. Right. Yeah, so the, the, well, again, if we're trying to, uh, if we're trying to get around the context of it, it, it would be. I mean, there's all sorts of arguments that could be made about it. But when we deal with it in its context and the purpose behind it, and what God clearly does say about something of the sort, uh, we would never be able to look at it honestly and say it's being condoned. Yeah. Sure. Those cultures more closely resemble what would have been what we see biblically in the times of the writing of the Bible. And so we can, yeah, certainly modern day examples of that very thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lifetime of responsibility with him there. Did you find it, Sam? Okay. Yeah. So he has a forever marriage. He pays the father 50 shekels of silver is a lot of money. It was a very <laughs> significant amount of restitution there. So, <laughs> depends who you ask, I guess, Adam. <laughs> All right, so that deals with that issue that brought up a rapist and his victim. Uh, It brings up concubines, but concubines, were they spouses? Were they considered wives? No. So that one's out. That doesn't even, that doesn't even register. It's more closely aligned with something like prostitution. Um, They were, uh, in a sense, they were enslaved uh, with, uh, 
because of that same issue, uh, because these women were defiled, that they um, were not eligible for marriage among um, a Jewish man. Uh, and so uh, what did they do? Well, they, they put themselves under uh, the uh, enslavement, if you will, of those who would take them as concubines. Um, so someone like Solomon, who had uh, five, six hundred concubines, whatever it was, um, he had these women that he provided for and cared for, um, but they were not in any way considered uh, a spousal arrangement. Um, but what about polygamy? Well, the first reference to polygamy is found in Genesis 4. So let's look at that. Now, this is something in the United States that uh, we just don't think a lot about. We read it in the Bible and say, well, that happened then. It's not really that big of a deal now until the Learning Channel or whatever it is decides they want to have a reality TV show about a polygamous family in Arizona. Uh, then it starts to become something we talk about a little bit more, but even still, those people are weird. But how about when we go out on the mission field and we deal with people groups who are polygamous. We deal with this in Nigeria. We go to the Tief people. Um, they are polygamous. I've met men who have nine to twelve wives. Uh, the, that man becomes a Christian. What does he do? <laughs> Is that polygamy? Are all of those women uh, his wives, and if so, how do we deal with that big, biblically? If not, uh, who is, and what do we do with these other women? Because in the very same way we just talked about, he can't just put them out because uh, they would be without any kind of provision. Um, so we need to think about this um, missiologically, and certainly um, there, uh, along with all of the other issues dealing with marriage in our culture today, polygamy is one that is starting to be talked about again. Perhaps it is permissible. Another one is polyamory. And that is, uh, instead of a man with multiple wives, it may be a man and a woman, or a man and two women, and you know another th three men and one woman, and all of them getting married together. Um, that these kind of strange mixtures of relationship. And these are things, if you think they're just out there and wacky, um, these are being discussed and are being now brought before courts and people are suing for rights to call these things marriage and all of that. So it's important for us to know how to think about them. So Genesis 4, uh, beginning in verse 9, uh, we see uh, in the lineage of Cain um, this first reference to polygamy. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a, ma a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, she conceived, and bore Enoch. 
When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujel, and Mehujel fathered Methuselah, uh, fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jebel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was, was Jubal. He was the father of all those uh, who play the lyre and pipe, and on and on. So we see um, down in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And he goes on to Cain's revenge and all these sorts of things. So this is the first time we see any reference to anyone taking more than one wife in the Bible. Um, what comes, uh, what happens in Genesis chapter 6? What's the major historical event in Genesis 6? The flood, right? Why did God flood the entire earth and only save Noah and his uh, descendants? Yeah, because he's disgusted with the wickedness on the earth. So does God come right out and say here, you know, Lamech took two wives and, um, and I don't approve of polygamy, therefore I'm going to. Uh, no, he doesn't address it specifically. However, when we get to Genesis 6, he looks at all that's going on in the earth and he's disgusted by it. And it says that he regrets that he ever created it. And so he's going to destroy it. So we have to, we have to understand that um, when God deals with the evil on the earth, it includes all of these things he's talked about up until this point. Uh, before the flood, we have a clear definition of what marriage is, right? From the garden in Genesis uh, chapter 2. Now, to compound Lamech's sin, he brags of his murderous deeds to his wives, uh, and the, the flood was brought upon the earth to, uh, to judge the sinfulness of mankind. Now, after the flood, there are many more references to polygamous relationships, including some of the patriarchs of Israel. Abraham, Jacob, David, uh, Solomon had a few wives, 700 um, but it's interesting to note in the scriptures there's never anything that says um, no man should have more than one wife. However, polygamous relationships are never mentioned in a positive light. That's important when we deal with any biblical interpretation. And the problem of such relationships are presented we see all sorts of problems that come because of polygamy. Um, and that is very significant. So let me give you an example uh, in how we interpret Scripture that will help with this. When we talk about our worship, one of the things that we are uh, very specific about in our worship is that we only want to do in our worship what God has commanded us to do. So, why don't we have, um, in our worship services, why would we never have a skit or a puppet show or something along those lines? Because God has not told us to do those things in worship. 
Now, there is a principle that exists where people would say, well, if God doesn't condemn it, then it's okay to do it. The problem is that opens the floodgates for all sorts of different things uh, to be able to, uh, to do in life and in practice. And so there's a principle here, a biblical interpretation, when we say uh, we, we simply cannot use an argument for anything, really, that says, well, God doesn't say don't do it, so that must mean we can. Um, now, there are certain things that we can do that God doesn't mention specifically, but we need to get at them a different way. That's not a good argument. So we can't argue, well, God doesn't say specifically that these men were wrong to having multiple wives, so it must have been okay. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. That's not, if we interpret Scripture that way, we're going to have a mess on our hands in all sorts of areas. Um, so we have to look at these other things. One, God never addresses it positively. He's never favorable of these relationships. And look at the problems that come from them. We see a multitude of problems. Anyone give us an example? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's great jealousy over that relationship because she had uh, the son that, um, that Sarah was not able to have, right? And so Abraham sends her out, and she's on her own, and she thinks her child's going to die in the wilderness because she has no provision, right? So uh, we see the result of that. And, and on top of that, what was, uh, what was to come of that child, Ishmael? What's that? Yeah, he's driven out, right? He's illegitimate. Okay, so in this instance, we see a direct result of man taking relationships in his own hands and uh, walking with them in the way he wants. Now, if we look at this in the New Testament, um, one of the requirements that God gives to those who are going to... um, to serve as elders within the church, that he's a man of one wife. Uh, Better translated probably is that he's a one-woman man, uh, that he doesn't have a bunch of wives. Well, to us, we can read that and say, okay, well, (laughs) that's not really a problem. Um, But it was culturally an issue for them to have to deal with. And so this is something that God looks at and says, this is the way uh, that this needs to be structured. Um. Another uh, few examples. Jacob uh, had many wives. It led to Rachel's jealousy of Leah. Joseph being betrayed and sold uh, by his half-brothers. David uh, had multiple wives. That led to the rape of one of his daughters, Tamar, by one of his sons, uh, Tamar's half-brother, Amon. And Amon's subsequent murder by Tamar's brother, Absalom. Uh, Solomon. He had many wives uh, that, he said, turned away his heart from the Lord and to the worship of false gods. We see that in 1 Kings 11. So over and over and over and over again, we see these relationships producing uh, terrible results. God does not approve of such things. Um, Now, the only direct command against polygamy is given to the kings that were to rule Israel. They're told in Deuteronomy 17, 17, not to take multiple wives to themselves. Um, And we can note, too, that polygamous relationships uh, are regulated in the commands that Moses gives to 
the nation of Israel. Um, Leviticus 18 instructs a man should not marry sisters. Deuteronomy 21 talks of assigning an heir to a man with two wives. Um, And in fact, most believe that that's actually prohibiting polygamy. The idea is that when a man dies, that um, someone needs to take on um, his responsibilities for this wife. But it says he needs to appoint an heir for his other wives. In other words, if I am, uh, my older brother dies, I am, according to Jewish law, I would have to take his wife as my own if I was not yet married. But if my brother had three wives, this keeps me from saying, well, all those three wives are now my three wives. No, I have his wife, who was the first one he married, and the other two have heirs appointed to them. Those two go to younger brothers or other family members as their wives at that point. Does that make sense? If you're already married, then it goes to the next in line. So, in fact, we have a good indication here that God was prohibiting this practice from continuing on. Uh, that it didn't continue in polygamy, that something else uh, was, uh, it was made provision through other people. Um, All right, so we can go on. The New Testament certainly deals with marriage uh, multiple times. It was always in the context of one man, one woman in that relationship. Um, And most importantly, what is marriage compared to in the Bible? Ultimately, we see it's a relationship between Christ and his church, a husband and a bride. Um, and so God's standard for marriage, once again, is defined as one man and one woman in that regard. All right, well, I want to just very quickly, we're out of time, but I want to press on to the last uh, two very quickly. The last one, well, because it just disgusts me, dang it. And their response is, props for being honest, however, a whole population of people shouldn't have their families discriminated against just because you think... It is icky. Grow up. Well, let me say this. The reality is that there should be an ick factor for us because it is morally reprehensible to God. So it should be to us as well. But our opposition ultimately to homosexuality is not because we're grossed out by it or because it's weird to us or because we could never imagine ourselves in that position. We're opposed to it ultimately because of what God has said and what God has designed and not what our culture and our, uh, our so-called natural desires determine for us. And to this, I simply say, let God be true and every man a liar. Cultural, uh, cultural um, norms and uh, the desires of man cannot dictate scripture for us. We need the Bible to interpret the Bible for us. What God has said will interpret the lives that we live. And this is the issue in which we will, uh, in our currently and in the days ahead more and more, uh, continue to stand against culture um, and be uh, ostracized and persecuted because of. I have no doubt about it that this will be the defining issue of our generation in which Christians are called to stand and fight. And so the final thing is, uh, so you think homosexuality is sinful, and the answer to no is congratulations on being part of civilized society. Well, as I just said, um, we are watching in our day... uh, 
supposed evangelical leaders even drop like flies when it comes to this issue. But it can't be that way. As God's people, we need to stand for the truth. And I've said before, I think probably within the next 50 years, if I'm to land in jail for preaching the gospel and not something else, uh, it's going to be because of this. Because it's going to eventually, having a class like this will be considered hate speech and, uh, and it will become the thing that uh, puts Christians under uh, the arm of the law. Uh, but we have God's truth behind us. And if this is something you've ignored or you've just tried not to think about or you've not really spent any time working through the Bible to deal with, uh, now's the time. We need to be very clear on this uh, so that we don't waffle and fall off of uh, the truth of the word. Josh? Oh, it says, have fun living your sexist, chauvinistic, judgmental, uh, xenophobic lifestyle choice. There's, uh, the rest of culture will advance forward without you. Yeah, for believing things that I was born with. Right. Right, absolutely. It's it's okay so long as it aligns with the cultural norm. It's acceptable, and we will call it acceptable, so long as it fits the talking points uh, that are currently most popular and in the media and all that sort of thing. As soon as we step outside of that uh, and stand on God's word, we are sexist, chauvinistic, xenophobic, and yada, yada, yada. Good. Any denomination today that denies the Bible's clear teaching on homosexuality is one that in the past has been very conservative on these issues. Um, The ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, used to be very sound. Uh, Now they have completely capitulated to culture and are apostate. Uh, Episcopalians have done the same. A United Methodist Church is divided on this issue now. Uh, the Presbyterian Church USA is uh, fully embracing homosexuality.
homosexuality. There are those within the Southern Baptist Convention now that are pushing against the norms uh, of uh, teaching within that um, denomination, and on and on and on. Why? Because it's a lot easier to go along with what the culture is doing. Um, We want to be cool and hip and relevant, and we want people to see us that way, and so uh, it's easier to go with what the culture says instead of um, walking along uh, the, the... uh, the way that God has given us, the narrow path that leads to life. Yes, sir. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I especially like the ones, uh, I love the ones that are being killed, and that's why I want to do something about it. Yeah, good. Well, let's, uh, we're out of time, so thank you. I hope this was helpful to you. I hope you continue to think about these things and continue ultimately, no matter what the issue is, that we want to ask the question, what does God say? That's what's most important. What does God say, and how do we respond accordingly? Let's pray, and we'll be done. Father, thank you again for our time. We pray, Lord, that you uh, would help us to think biblically and soundly about the issues that face us today. We want to be a people who walk in accordance with your word, regardless of what the world around us says and does. Lord, help us to be faithful, uh, to not compromise. And Lord, we want to, um, we want to be uh, wise as serpents and gentle as doves. And where we are able, that we would live and work for the prosperity of our communities. Uh, But Lord, where we are asked to compromise, that we continue to stand faithfully on on your word, no matter what the outcome. Uh, So Lord, thank you for this time. Prepare our hearts now as we gather for worship. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.